folks in the later season, if, if it's in the rut, obviously they're just kind of, well, first of all, they're tired and they're also got their mind on other things and they're just not nearly as alert mm-hmm. as they are uh, during the regular time of the year. That's why, obviously, the rifle hunters love to hunt coos deer in the December hunt. For years, I've thought the quieter the bow, the less reaction there will be. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you do the math of the time it takes the sound to get there versus the time it takes the arrow to get there, uh, you would think that the sound would be the factor that's the most important if you're going to avoid jumping the string. And that was the theory I've gone with for years. Now I'm kind of second guessing myself completely. A lot of people will hit whatever left or right or high or low on their first shot consistently. So my point was before hunting season, sight your bow in for your first shot because that's the shot you're going (laughs) to, that's the shot that counts. You know, talking about linear equivalencies, you'll find that turbulence is a linear to accuracy as well. The Uh less turbulence a broadhead creates, the more accurate it's going to be and the less fletching it requires. So you're looking for a broadhead that looks as much like a field point as possible. As long as, obviously, you know, it has to be functional. What's up, Days in the Wild Nation? Before we get into this next episode, I have a couple of favors to ask of you. I know you heard me say it before, but please take a few moments and go give us a review on iTunes. It really helps me reach more people, helps my ratings, which ultimately helps me keep this podcast free and create content for you guys. If you could also go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags, check out their line of shooting and hunting products. A lot of game-changing stuff on there. Uh, And if you use promo code John Stallone, you'll save 20%. John Stallone, all one word. Lastly, if you've been listening to the show, you know that uh, Days in the Wild podcast and Days in the Wild Outfitters have partnered with Primos. We love their trail cameras, love their ground blinds. We use some of their calls, assortment of other little gadgets here and there um go check them out tons of stuff on their website if you use promo code stl02 you'll save 15 percent. thanks for tuning in and let's jump into this next episode hi welcome to days and wild big game hunting podcast brought to you by phoenix shooting bags today we're going to talk about a little uh a little subject i'm sure a lot of you have dealt with in your in your bow hunting careers. And if you haven't, then God bless you. And that's having a deer jump your string, the the quote unquote string jump. There's a lot of theories floating around there. I have my own and uh, my guest, Randy Ulmer. I'm sure he has his own as well. (laughs) What's going on, Randy? (laughs) Not much. Uh, Yeah, I have theories, but no no concrete answers. Yeah. I'm going to save this hopefully towards the end, but I've ha- I have a philosophy that when I stick to it, it always proves to be fruitful for me. My problem is that I get in my own head and I don't stick to my, I don't stick to my philosophy. <laughs> but anyway, so before we kind of get into this, I know, was it last year or was it the year before you lost like a giant buck? to a jump in your string. I know that's kind of how you I went was, down this uh, road. I read, I read an article. Yeah, it's this past fall. Or was um, this past fall? Okay. Yeah. I've, I've, and historically, uh, it's very painful, but, you know, historically, I've had a lot of issues with string jumping over the years. 
And in my opinion, what, what I have, what I have found from watching my friends shoot and, and uh, me shoot at bucks, uh, what I found is you said, this is a giant buck. And he was an, he was an older age class buck. And what I've found is, um, that you can have a group, say a bachelor, and most of the time, just just for the people that don't know who I am, I'm a bow hunter. Most of the time, I'm hunting these deer in the late summer, late August, or early September mm-hmm. uh, when they're in bachelor groups. And and uh, my point is that you can watch a, a herd of deer, and usually if there's a bachelor group of deer, and let's say there's one really old age class buck, oftentimes there will be a, a variety of age classes in the group and you know usually you're not just hunting a single buck at that time of year you're there's a group of bucks and you can watch these bucks react to the shot and it seems as though not not always but it seems as though uh, the older the buck the more likely they are to jump the string excessively or or they're much more likely to react uh much more quickly and much more aggressively to the shot than say a younger buck. It's not, obviously it's not the size of the buck. Usually it's the age class. They've just been around longer and, you know, mule deer, mountain lion bait. And so they're, uh, they're on edge all the time. And, and, uh, the older age class bucks have just seen more and probably been pursued more, uh, by hunters as well as other things. And they just react more quickly and, because I'm less tolerant trying to hunt an older age class buck. Uh, I've just been struggling with this particular situation a great deal. And I, I would, I would have to say that, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, about half of the bucks that I've shot, uh, older age class bucks have jumped the string and um, usually, you know, I get lucky and uh, I'm able to recover them. Uh, unfortunately, the one last year I didn't. Hmm. I'm going to play the little devil's advocate with that that theory about the older age class. You go for it. I'm I'm willing to learn. I'm really <laughs> but I, I, and I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm not wrong or, or right or wrong about it. But I've seen even young bucks jump pretty damn. What do you call it? Uh, you know, they, they're really, really gone before the freaking arrow gets there. Like really, really get into it. But I think, and I think the reason is that the other bucks that are in the group don't jump as, you know, drastically as the buck that you're shooting at. I used to think it was bow noise. I was convinced that they're jumping because of the bow. And when I go back and I take account of all the times that I did miss, my conclusion, and it was backed up by a study of a guy in Africa, and uh, I had a really long conversation with Tim Gillingham about this, actually. I think it's arrow noise. And Well, I think, I think you're probably right to a degree. I think it's a combination of, of several things. Back in the day, uh, when when I first started working on this, oh, this is thirty years ago. But we would, uh, one of us would go back behind, uh, and we would say shoot at the at say a sixty yard bale, mm-hmm. but we would hide behind <clears throat> hide behind the fifty yard bale and listen to the arrow go by, right? And you know, see you know which type of fletching uh, created the most noise. And yeah, you can hear the arrow. Uh, you can hear the arrow coming, but 
I would have to argue that it's more the bow noise, especially the closer you are to the deer. Mm-hmm. Now, once you get out a long ways away, yeah, I think they have time to hear the arrow coming. Um, well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. My experience but the bow been- is so much louder than the arrow. However, at a longer distance, you know, as you well know, mm-hmm. the volume of sound is uh, lost at the square of the distance. Mm-hmm. So the bow noise is at a fixed distance away. So basically, at 20 yards and at 40 yards, there's not twice as much volume of sound at 20 yards as 40 yards. It's actually the square of that. So whatever that is, 1,600 versus 400. Mm-hmm. So it's four times as much at, at 40 yards as it is, at, or excuse me, at 20 yards as it is at 40, at 40 yards. yards. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the arrow is coming to the deer and the volume is getting louder the closer it is. So right. at close right. distances, I don't know how true that is. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I tend I to agree with you. Sub 30. Yeah. Yeah, Sub 40. I yeah. I think the further away, the, the, the bow sound is not as big a factor. And, and, and we'll get into that a little more into my philosophies and my theories and my, my research and, and what I think. But I think, yeah, and I definitely work on quieting my arrow down uh, by doing a bunch of different things. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, the quietest arrows are the arrows. Uh, what creates noise in an arrow is is air turbulence right and obviously well maybe not obviously to younger shooters but you know a lot of people when they started shot feathers i'd say more than half of people shot feathers and feathers because they create so much turbulence and they have such a corrugated you know surface area they create a lot more noise they whistle uh, in flight as as uh, fletchings as plastic fletchings and it seems to be the stiffer the fletching, the less noise it makes. In my experience, if the fletching's kind of soft, long, it, it tends to flutter a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, but the other thing is, it's just the diameter of the arrow shaft. A, a very small diameter arrow shaft will create less noise, and it also requires less fletching, so you can reduce the noise that way. But the, probably the one of the most important things is, is the broadhead type. You know, a uh, right. A fixed blade broadhead, especially a big fixed blade broadhead, creates a lot of noise, especially if it's got, you know, bended blades. It just creates a lot of turbulence. And because it creates a lot of turbulence, it also creates, uh, requires a lot more fletching. So uh, a very, very, very streamlined broadhead, say like the, oh, probably the most streamlined broadhead out there is the uh, Sever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it creates a lot less noise than than even some of the uh, less streamlined mechanical heads. But if, in my experience, if you know, there's so much you can do uh, with bow noise and and uh, arrow noise, and I've done as much as I could with both. But but uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a, it's a little bit of both. But mm-hmm. I think for the most part, the issues we actually get are more, are caused more by a bow noise than arrow noise yeah. for the average bow hunter that's, you know, shooting within 40 yards. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely see, I definitely think that's a, a factor, 100%. That uh, study that I quoted that they did in Africa, um, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but they were sitting in a ground blind on a, on a water hole and, when animals came in, 
they shot at a target outside the side window and the animals didn't jump. They flinched, but they didn't jump. And when they shot at the animals on video, they jump big time. And rear. Okay, yeah. well, uh, <clears throat> that's very interesting. How close was the target to uh, the animals? I, I'd have to... I'd have to look because um, uh, I'm going to try to blow a hole in your theory. Just or they're well. First of all, they're scientific yeah. technique. First of all, very few of us, especially here in the West. Well, especially me. I mean, I just never hunt out of a ground blind. And, and what I found is it's very rare to have an animal jump the stream when you're inside of a ground blind. Uh, much less rare because the sound is is greatly reduced just because it's you know basically inside a building and especially with the blinds they use in Africa I don't know what kind they use but a lot of those are permanent blinds mm-hmm. so they're not really comparing apples to apples as far as how most of us hunt in the United States because they've they've completely changed one of the biggest factors and that's the amount of noise that's hitting the animal uh, if you're shooting within a ground blind and you're comparing how much an animal jumps from the bow noise versus the fletching noise i'll agree with them 100 percent um yes yeah, I, I i thought that as well mitigating one of the biggest factors i thought that as well but as an outfitter i run a lot of guys on ground blinds on water holes for coos deer and i haven't seen one coos deer not jump not one i have a philosophy on how i i personally shoot again like i said i'll say that a little bit more toward the end but um that they don't jump for the most part. But just to, for instance, I think it comes down to they know when they come to a waterhole that that's an ambush point for lions, for whatever, for hunters. And they are super, 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 super skittish. Like, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about my last year's coos buck. Okay. In August... I uh, I stalked a big velvet buck somewhere around that 105 to 110 range. And um, I got to where I like to get to, to shoot coos there while I'm spot and stalk. And that's like 70 yards because normally once, once it's past 60, they do not jump. To, they do not jump the string. They do not react. And that plays into what you were saying about the bow, right? And not the arrow, mm-hmm. but I will listen to the rest of the story. Normally, I never shoot while their head is down feeding ever because when they do react and their head is down, they use their head as like a lever to throw their body down. They get down way faster than if they were standing up. And I usually wait till they flick their tail and I know they're going to take a step. When they flick their tail and they start to take that step, that's usually when I shoot. Now, most people will be like, well, 70 yards, you know, whatever, he's moving. Well, my reason for that is I've never, ever, ever, ever had a single deer react or be able to react fast enough that when the arrow is coming to them like that, they cannot react. So I didn't do any of that. I didn't follow my normal, I think he had his head down. I'm like, oh, cool, slam dunk, broadside shot. I shot, he didn't move until the arrow was like 20 yards from them. As soon as he moved, and I hit him, but I hit him high. And unfortunately, I lost that deer. 
I was going to punch my tag and just not hunt for the rest of the year. I actually did for the season. I just, I didn't, I didn't hunt the rest of September or, or August or September. And, you know, the, the problem is that, and, and I seen this several times before I had a black tail in California do it or I shoot and he's just sitting there watching the arrow come at him. And then all of a sudden, Oh, that's something coming at me. And you can see it in the video. They react. And, and these are the longer shots where I'm negating the bow sound going off, you know, to an extent. Uh, it was a fairly breezy day too. So there was, you know, leave noise and whatever going on. And I, I lost that deer. So I was heartbroken. And so in my head, I just lost this deer. Now, fast forward to December. And one caveat too, I wanted to say this earlier when you're talking about how, when you like to hunt, you hunt velvet bucks for some reason, I've always, it's probably has something to do with their testosterone level or whatever. They definitely react more in the early season than they do in the late season, especially mule deer. Like when mule deer is on a rut, I've seen them take like champ, you know, but <laughs> anyway, the, the thing is I, I, so I get in this ground blind, I'm hunting over a water hole. And before the buck comes in, a doe comes in and she's drinking and a bird, I shit you not, a bird comes and lands on the trough and she turned inside out. She moved so, reacted so fast that she slipped and fell and hit, hit the concrete apron. And then she got up and shook it off. She's like, oh, that was a bird. I'm an idiot. And she went back to drinking. And every like couple seconds she'd flinch because the bird was making a movement to drink. And... I was like, whoa, shit, man. If a buck comes in here, I better be like on my A game, right? And I knew based on the tracks and the couple deer that I had seen come in before that more than likely they were going to come drink from this corner and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I ranged it up, I don't know, probably 50, to 50 times for whatever reason while I was sitting there. And my buck comes in and he's heading towards the hole. And I went back to my, my, my philosophy. I guess I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I, I always wait for them to be moving just a slight, like, like now I'm not talking about like full on walk, you know, I'm 33 yards from the tank. Okay. And he's coming up to the corner and in my head, because I had the one jump in August and I had this doe just jump like a maniac in front of me. I'm like, I'm going to use my 30-yard pin at 33 yards. Just enough that if he jumps, you know, I'll be able to, the arrow will compensate. But I went with my, my old, what I always do. And as he's walking up, before he stopped, before he stopped to take a drink, like right as he got, I timed it right as he got to the tank, I shot. And well, he didn't react at all. And I hit a little low. I ended up recovering him. I got the deer, but it would have been a deer that I would have, you know, walked a hundred yards and found them. This one, I had a, had a trail him for a long time and I had to give him a lot of time and whatever. And it was just, it wasn't, uh, I almost lost that deer and I would have been really heartbroken if I did two deer and a, two good deer in a year. And, um, so anyway. I forgot where I was going with all that. <laughs> well, we, I think where you started with that is that you uh, were talking about shooting deer out of a ground. Blind, oh yeah, out of uh, a ground blind. Yes, and all your all your uh, 
all your whitetails, uh, coos deer, jumped the string uh, out of a ground line. I, I I've only shot two coos deer, and they're both very old bucks. Um, I've seen them. Awesome. And uh, awesome bucks. Neither one of them, and I was just in like a just in a cloth ground blind, mm-hmm. uh, and and neither one, both of those deer were, um, you know, at a water hole. Mm. And uh, interestingly enough, neither one of them jumped the stream. The distances were forty and sixty, okay. um, which is good because you know <laughs> there's not much room for error on a goose deer. Right, uh, they're kill zone is so small and I, I got those are the only two I've ever shot at out of ground blind and they didn't jump stream thank goodness cause was like, it the rut yeah it was in January yeah. uh, they were by themselves though so and that was going to be my other point about you know saying the deer more likely to jump the string in uh, the early season I agree with that because yeah. bucks in the later season if, if it's in the rut obviously they're just kind of well, first of all, they're tired, and they're also got their mind on other things, and they're just not nearly as alert mm-hmm. as they are uh, during the regular time of the year. That's why, obviously, the rifle hunters love to hunt coos deer in the December hunt, yep. the late hunt. And, and one other thing you said that I'll comment on is, is you know, and this is you've kind of discovered before me, even though I've you know shot a lot of competition and whatnot uh, i don't shoot my my hard and fast rule for the last 30 years is i don't shoot at any animal over 60 yards mm-hmm. and i've been getting lucky when i do have animals jump the string that i've i've able i've been able to recover almost all of them uh, because you That's typically awesome. hit them a little high a little back but you know usually I've been able to recover them. This last one, I didn't. And so I've really been researching. And what I've done, well, you, you talked about shooting at them, uh, never shooting at them with their head down. Mm-hmm. The difficulty I experience, you know, with that, um, and you said you wait till they're tail to flick. The problem I've got with that is um, it's much easier to get your bow drawn back when their head is down. Right. Um, when their head is up, unless you get really lucky and they happen to lift their head up and turn away, you can't get your bow drawn back. You know, obviously, if you're in a ground blind, that's one thing, but all yeah. my deer are spot and stock. And so I have to wait until their eyes are covered or something's going on to get my bow drawn back. And then once you get that bow drawn back, I can't just sit there and wait for their tail to flick. Yeah. You know, I have to shoot in the strength of my shot. So, I've really, because I agree with you 100% about the, the, my brother and I discovered that 30 years ago, that, you know, when you shoot at a deer uh, or an elk with their head down, especially if it's, uh, we'll say an elk, I mean, good grief, I've only ever had two elk jump the string, but both of them were really big bulls, and they've got all that leverage, because yeah. obviously, no animal can kind of grab a hold of the ground and pull themselves down, so they're purely pulled down by gravity unless they have the lever of their head to pull themselves down right and you know the head weighs a lot especially if it's got a big rack on it and they can really yank their as they yank their head up they're pulling their chest down uh, so they're actually reacting faster than you know the the uh then then gravity can can allow them to react mm-hmm. yeah yeah no that's Hundred percent. Actually, I think there is a study uh, some white ki- whitetail guys did uh, on that, where they measured how fast they can drop with the head down versus just gravity. 
and it's it's quite a bit more. It is quite a bit more. Yeah, you know, I've read some of the studies and I've watched some of the studies they've done, and they all seem to have some errors uh, in yeah. the study, and, and only because we really don't know. Like uh, there was one study they did, and it was pretty good. They had an, uh, an engineer uh, running it, uh, but the mistake they made—they were testing how fast a, a whitetail could drop mm-hmm. uh, at 20, 30, and forty yards, and you know whether the speed of a bow. They had a bow that was a a uh, shooting three hundred, I think three hundred sixty feet per second. One that was shooting like four ten, but or excuse me, three ten, and and. The problem with their study is they use the reaction time of an Olympic athlete, which is like point, it's 165 milliseconds or 0.16 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe um, that. That deer is better. Basically, what their study said is, you know, a fast bow is going to be effective out to like 35 years, even if the deer jumps a string. But the problem with their study is that the. Reaction time of an Olympic athlete, even though they're highly tuned athletes, I think wild animals are much quicker, I would guess, than to be much quicker. And the other thing they didn't do in their study is compensate for the fact that if a deer has his head down, he can actually kind of yank himself up. Mm-hmm. So they were saying, you know, you need to shoot at a deer under 30 yards in order to avoid jumping the string. But, you know, I've seen videos of deer jump the string completely at 20 yards but they all had their head down right so i, I have videos I, I, that, i've killed that's, I many white tail out of a deer, deer stand and i got videos of all that stuff so yeah uh, i think i think the, the thing is there's so many variables mm-hmm. that there's no because some, some you know it's some people say well you just need to aim low on all animals well no, no. because if they don't jump the string and you aim low and you miss them completely and the reason it's so painful for me on the ones that jump the string for me is you know i've spent all summer trying to find this one buck and and then i'm sitting there and and like i said i always wait till i get 60 yards before i shoot because i think well at 60 yards i'm really confident that i can kill them you know i mean assuming everything you know assuming the conditions are good you know it's a clear shot broadside Mm -hmm. no wind all that kind of stuff but you just sit there and you're just kind of quivering because you're going, man, if this thing jumps a string, I'm screwed. And having a deer with their head up, uh, they are going to see that arrow coming, especially if you use brightly colored fletchings. There's a seeing arrow coming and there's a hearing arrow coming. Mm -hmm. And that's why you'll notice that I never use bright colored fletchings. My whole arrow is camouflaged as well because it's just i mean i I can't ever see the arrow on flight whereas if you use big bright fletching you can see the arrow on flight the animal's certainly going to see it yeah Um, let me let me let me clarify the head up thing okay just so so you understand what what i do exactly and and you know you could tell me if you like it or not but i do draw back when their head is down and i kind of time it i've gotten really accustomed to looking at body movement whatever and and trying to you know and you never know obviously you never know every deer is different every situation is different but it's when they're lifting their head up is when i shoot um and i almost never make the sound unless i got a you know i'm in a tree stand and a buck is chasing a doe or whatever and i you know they're moving fast like that kind of stuff um, but on a, on a mule deer, I never, 
ever, ever bad, ever. Every time I have, it doesn't go my way. The shot ends up being a bad shot or I miss completely. And he wasn't a big buck. This was not, and this was, you know, goes into your, the mature buck thing. His buck was a 130-inch deer, maybe three years old. He wasn't very big, but it was my last day. And I'm one of those guys that I got to fill my tag. Otherwise, I lose my mind. He was coming down this trail, and I I gave him the bat to, to slow him up. And, man, he turned inside out when I shot. That was 50 yards, inside out. And uh, I missed him. I got it on video, too. Actually, I got it on video on my GoPro, and we got it on video through the spotting scope. And, I mean, the arrow was like a foot over his back by the time he, get, you know, he gets there. Um, yeah, I've, I've never been a big fan of, uh, of, of stop, trying to stop a mule deer. They, they're just too – they're wired too hard. Mountain mule deer, anyway, where there's cats uh, – Mm-hmm. Now I'll stop an elk. Obviously, if if uh, they're moving, chasing cows or whatever, I'll always stop an elk because they'll. It's, well, with a cow call. Yeah, but if that's a, call, that's stop, a sound they're expecting to hear. And then they tend to not jump the stream just because they expect movement. Right, they heard the sound. But yeah, you're, you're right with mule deer. Not a good idea. And and just to clarify, <clears throat> I didn't mean to say if I did that that uh, young deer won't jump the string. Oh, no. no. What I'm saying is uh, you of a group of deer that are, say, age class from one to eight, the eight-year-olds tend to be a lot more likely to jump the string in a very reactive way. Yeah, well, they've seen more. Buck. They've seen more. They've been through more. They, that's what got them to eight years old is them being – you know, right. wired, exactly. wired hard. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, the, the real question, John, is, is you know, uh, for people that are trying to deal with it, my real questions are this, what do we do? Right. You know, we can speculate on what causes it, what, what my, where I'm at now and where I've been for the last 15 years is, okay, what do I do? I've gone from shooting a very fast bow, say 310 feet per second, down to right now I'm shooting a bow that's probably 250 feet per second. Mm-hmm. Because uh, for years I've thought, well, you know, I, the quieter the bow, the less reaction there will be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do the math of the time it takes the sound to get there versus the time it takes the arrow to get there, uh, the difference in an arrow speed between, say, 260 and 300 feet per second shouldn't be that much because the sound, you know, sound travels at whatever, 1,100 feet per second, mm-hmm. and the arrow's traveling like one-fourth that speed. Right. So uh, you would think that, that the sound would be the factor that's the most important if you're going to avoid jumping the string, and that was the theory I've gone with for years. And now I'm kind of second-guessing myself completely because I just – can't stop having the problem and the vast majority of deer i shoot are from 40 to 60 yards right which so is now I'm i think that the, the distance that they jump the most or that they're most likely to have them jump is right around 40 40 and 50 like yeah well and that's kind of where i'm going right now with things because you know like a lot of us i i practice a lot at 100 yards and um you know on a on a calm day with, with really good circumstances, shooting a broadhead, you know, shooting my hunting bow, 
I'm pretty darn consistent at being able to kill a deer on the, or, you know, hit the kill zone, I should say, mm-hmm. at 100 yards. But, but I, there's so many things that can go wrong at 100 yards. And at 60 yards, you know, I'm, I'm in the 90 percentile of being able to kill a deer. Even if I'm, you know, all worked up and got buck fever, I can just make that shot. Mm-hmm. But I'm questioning myself now because, like I said, this, the, the volume of sound – Mm-hmm. And and a deer or a person for that matter, anything is going to be much more reactive. If you say, clap your hands behind a person at say two feet, they're going to jump. But if you clap your hands between, a, you know, behind a person at twenty feet, they're not going to do anything. They're going to look. Um, most people won't. So uh, I think the volume of the sound is very important. And again, the volume of the sound it is you know is 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 logarithmic and so i'm starting to wonder if i should either try to get say under 35 yards which sometimes is very difficult mm-hmm. uh, but obviously you know stick boy guys do it uh and i've done it a lot but one of the things that i've discovered is if you get too close to a deer boy they have this they have yes spatial awareness spatial awareness that's different uh, exactly and you can't get away with it anything yeah. whereas you know we're stuck in a, it's it's a hell of a well it's more than twice as easy to sneak within 40 yards as it is within 20 yards and not get detected mm-hmm. um so i'm i'm kind of i'm considering instead of shooting usually what i do when i'm stalking a mule deer i stalk to within 60 yards and then i allow myself to shoot and this is going to be real easy to stalk to within 40 Right. Usually I'll stop at 60. That's just my spot. That's my sweet spot. But I'm seriously considering trying to expand that. And just like you said, with the whitetails to 70 or 80, because I can still, I hate to wound stuff, but I can still be pretty effective. I mean, I can have very, very high percentage shots at 70 to 80. Again, flat ground, mm-hmm. no wind, broadside shot, that sort of thing. So, I'm I'm considering doing that, um, but then you know you got to make sure that they're not looking at you or can see the motion of the arrow, right. or see the arrow coming, because if that's the case, they have so much time just to step out of the way. The other thing at eighty or say hundred yards is the arrows in the air. Well, at hundred yards, the arrows if at three hundred feet per second, arrows in the air for a second, which doesn't seem like much time until the arrows. Tell you're actually watching that arrow fly. So many things can happen in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm anxious to hear your thoughts. Uh, obviously, you know, you said Cooster's a very small target, tough at 70 yards. But you say you're liking to shoot them. You like to shoot them at 70 or 80 yards. 70 yards is my favorite. Yeah, absolute favorite. Because yeah. at 70 yards, I feel very confident. Um, I I don't feel like I can really still pick a spot. My eyesight's still good enough. I could pick a spot on the on it. Uh, you know, I've done. If I look back through all the animals that I've shot over the years, not just coos deer, but everything, antelope, everything, I think I've done most of my work between sixty and seventy-five yards, mm-hmm. and nice. I've had the most. Well, and that's not including the. I don't know. 80 plus whitetail I've killed out of a white out of a tree stand. That's a different story. 
Yeah, that's different. A different country, different everything. But, but I learned yeah, a, I, I learned a lot about reaction of deer, and I changed up because I had many times where I shot twenty yards out of a tree stand. Man, I missed the biggest buck of my life. Still haunts me to this day. Uh, in Illinois, I had like a hundred eighty inch whitetail. I mean, for me, would have been my biggest buck, and he wasn't even in the same spot by the time my arrow got to him, and he was at twenty five yards interesting was his head down you know what i have to go back and look at that video but i he was a doe had come through and he was like bird dogging her and he had stopped where she stopped and he was looking around his head was not down and you know what he did he put his head down to start going again i think and it was like it was the weirdest thing because i've never and i was shooting I don't know how many feet per second then. I mean, I was my Matthews LX. If I was getting 260 feet per second out of that bow back then with the arrow that I was shooting, I mean, that would have been good. I don't know. And, and honestly, I, I don't know to this day. I don't know what, if it was, maybe I pulled it. I have no clue. I have no clue, but it was a bad, <laughs> it burnt for a long time. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been a Western hunter since I moved to Arizona in 1991, and I but I've always gone at least done one whitetail trip every year since I lived here. So I've had a lot of opportunity to see and hunt just about everything. Um, definitely not as accomplished of a hunter as you are I mean, by any means, but I've taken my fair share of animals, and you know, over the years, I've I've come to this conclusion that I was saying before that I kind of don't. I look for certain body positions that I don't, where I don't shoot at all because I know, unless I'm in a certain range, if I'm close enough, I know my bow's fast enough or whatever. That's a different story, but I shoot a faster arrow than you do. I don't shoot a super, I'm a middle of the road guy. That's my philosophy. I hunt everything. I don't like to change my bow setup through the year. And my philosophy is I like to be right around 280 feet per second. And I designed my arrows to try to have between fourteen and six. It's fourteen to seventeen percent FOC, and I build everything a very certain. You know, I actually just did a podcast about this, um, and I found that two hundred eighty feet per second is just fast enough. It's just heavy enough to make my my bow. I can notice the difference between when it goes up to three hundred feet per second. I can notice the difference in the bow sound, and you know, I, I just for me, it's like. I, I have always tried to been in the middle of everything because I, I feel like in engineering, you always got to give up something to gain something. So you wanted to gain a quiet hour, a quiet bow, right? So you gave up speed, and it's like there's always a give and take. So I try to I try to be Switzerland, you know, and try to be in the middle of everything. But yeah, and you know, I started off fast and I went all the way down through, um, and uh, what I found is just the bow. So, well, the, the very best way, you know, after you do the obvious things, and I do everything with my bow, but, you know, including taking the quiver off before I shoot, because the quiver is where most of the noise comes from. But mm -hmm. after you've done all that, the very best way to make a bow quiet is uh, to make it shoot slower, because obviously it's more efficient when it shoots slower, and, and uh, any inefficiency in the bow is, is lost in vibration, which obviously equates to sound mm -hmm. um but obviously my um my theories have not been working uh 
so I'm kind of back at the drawing board right now um, and trying to figure out uh, maybe uh, why is good. But you're much better off, again, at between 60 and 80 yards, you know, whatever 80 squared is, 1,600 mm-hmm. versus 60 squared, you know, which is, is 360, um, or excuse me, 3,600 versus. But anyway, there's a huge difference from 60 to 80 yards in what the volume of the sound of course, of yeah. is. Uh, it wouldn't seem that way, but but it is. So. Anyway, I'm still think I'm going to go with the slow arrow because you know with the back when I started all this, I, I you know there wasn't such a thing as a a, a, a blazer rangefinder, mm-hmm. and so we had to shoot fast, uh, you know, and right. I shot 3D. We had to shoot fast to to compensate for drop and uh, and lack of, of ability to judge yardage perfectly. But now that we have rangefinders, there's no reason to shoot it. There's no reason I can see to shoot a really fast bow unless, because, you know, another problem with fast bows, typically, typically, not so much now as it used to be, um, there's a big difference in accuracy between a 320 foot per second bow and a 280 foot per second bow. Or maybe not accuracy is not the right term, forgiveness. Forgiveness, yeah. I, a slower bow is much, much, much more forgiving. And in hunting situations, you definitely need forgiveness mm-hmm. yeah i just did the math basically there's half the sound at 80 yards because it's 6400 versus 3600 so there's half the volume of sound at 80 yards as there is at 60 yards so um you know you can't do anything to your bow to make it half as quiet so i am seriously thinking and i hate to even say it on a podcast but i'm seriously thinking that if i can get good shots I'm thinking about expanding my distance uh, to 70, 80 yards, you know. You know what? Year, years ago, you'd probably get castrated for it, but I would say, you know, especially guys now that run all these sliders and everything else, like out here, I, I mean, I hear it all the time, 100, 115, whatever. I don't think anybody's going to – anybody's going to look at Randy Omer of all people differently, a world-class archer, to shoot a 70-yard shot. Well, that, and yeah, I used but, to get hate mail for it too. I got some some. Well, yeah, but there's the problem is 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 there's a difference between kind of knowing your limitations and and people get very complacent shooting at say there's a lot of people out there that shoot hundred yard shots now and what they do and and I've had a some a little bit of fun with this with some of my buddies but they'll they'll shoot at a hundred yards in their in their backyard or wherever at the range. And they're shooting out of the wind, and, and they're all warmed up. And they're typically, everyone always shoots field points, and they get very confident. Um, it's a false sense confident. of confidence. And and then you take them with an actual broadhead, and it's fun to do this in, in hunting camp. You say, okay, you just get one shot. You get one shot, but you got to shoot your broadhead, and you got to, yep. you know, you got to hit a, uh, a mule deer sized kill zone at 100 yards on your first shot. And the vast majority of people that have a hundred yard pin can't do it on the first shot. So oh, yeah. a lot of wounded animals out there, and and that's why I try to follow what I preach and, and not do that. And, but when you say that, hey, I'm going to start taking eighty yard shots or further, then then I think you're encouraging everybody else to. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference, I think, between like you say, and you keep emphasizing that you know you wait till 
perfect body language, you know, the perfect shot placement or the, you know, perfect uh, body angle mm-hmm. and, you know, no wind, all that sort of thing. And so, yeah, can you make an 80 yard shot? Yes. But you have to select that 80 yard shot. I think a lot of people get excited and go, okay, my max range is, my effective range is 80 yards or 100 yards. So, but then they take a marginal shot at that distance. And uh, I, I just see so many wounded animals, especially elk, mm-hmm. uh, just because they're tougher, but in a lot yeah. of wounded deer. And I just hate that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, you know, we've all been. It's just like you say, you got to know your. I, I just actually uh, texted you a video. So, thing I've been doing for years, and I think uh, Robbie uh, Denning is doing a cold bow challenge thing now for the last couple of years. But what I do is every time I go to the range, my first shot is at my longest distance with a broadhead. Mm-hmm. And if I can't make that shot every single time, then that is no longer an effective range for me for hunting. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, I've written articles about that 30 years ago, just that, Hey, keep your bow in your garage. If you have a, you know, if you have room at your house to shoot and keep your bow in your garage and uh, once a day, walk down there, don't warm up, pull it back and shoot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because a lot of people, as they warm up, they actually warm into their form. Right. And their first shot doesn't necessarily, a lot of people will hit whatever left or right or high or low on their first shot consistently. So my point was before hunting season, sight your bow in for your first shot because that's the shot you're going <laughs> to, that's the shot that counts. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, looking at the performance of that bow too, like, are you going to, or is your arrow set up, your bow set up, going to have enough performance to do the job correctly too? And most of us do now, you know. Well, yeah, and, and but, I like what you said. I, I have the same philosophy. Uh, I don't change bows from animal to animal. Um, like some people have an antelope set up and then mm-hmm. say an elk set up. Uh, that's one of the reasons I like, I shoot a 550 grain arrow, 500. 20 last year, but I shoot a very heavy arrow um, just because I want to, I think muscle memory, especially in high pressure situations is extremely important. So if you're going from one bow to another, uh, you can get yourself in trouble. And also, you know exactly what the performance of your bow is. So right. I, I'm with you on shooting the same, your middle of the road. I'm actually real slow, but I, I do shoot heavy, I, well, heavy, relatively heavy. I shoot 70 pounds, 70 to 75, mm-hmm. you know, with 500 grain arrow. So I, I can hunt anything with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, That's and a- again, with a range finder, it doesn't, it really don't need to shoot that fast, you know, unless we discover at some point that really your arrow speed is what's saving you from having these animals jump the string but if you do the math i don't think that's the case yeah i don't know i've seen but i've seen it both heard. ways but i and i and i guess because there's so much uncertainty that's also one of the reasons why i've been a mineral road guy for i don't know 15 20 years and i was doing it before i knew i was doing it for a reason is that i like to have a little bit of everything you know i like to have a little bit of punch you know, one one good thing about shooting a real slow, heavy arrow, or not necessarily the slowness, but the heavy arrow, is that if the deer does react and you catch it in the shoulder, you're you're probably still going to get that deer, you know, pretty confidently that 
you know, he's going to be able that that heavy of an arrow is going to be able to you know do work. And um, well, yeah, you know, if you're shooting well, a super uh, light arrow with a crappy ass broadhead, you, you know, you might not not have that. I actually, I've seen it several times. Well, one but, of the things I'd like to do, um, not that this is my podcast, but I, I think what people probably want to know. We've been talking about philosophies, and, yep. and uh, but I, I just like to throw out a few things that, that I do that people might want to try. Sure, absolutely. Animals jump in the string, and and um, if you don't mind, just throw out a few things. No, but no, that's why I have you on. Thing is, uh, <laughs> is kind of get a feel for what the animals in your area are like, um, and if you know most of the people. Obviously, most of the people in the U.S. are whitetail hunters, and you can get a pretty good idea. I mean, like Texas whitetail, probably a lot more to jump the string than, say, uh, an Iowa whitetail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not a whitetail expert by any stretch, but I have hunted in Texas, and I have hunted up in the Midwest, and they seem like the, the deer in Texas are hyperwired. But, you know, there's different deer depending on the pressure and the deer, which you can usually talk to somebody in the area and figure out because some people will actually aim low. And, and I think if you're in the right spot and these are very seasoned hunters that will aim a little low, but one thing I would encourage and, and with the, the white tail experience I've had is, is what I try to do. Cause usually at least my white tail shots have all been well under 40 yards. So usually what I do is, which is very comfortable shot, especially since you're sitting in a tree stand, right. tree stand. but I tend to shoot, I can't hardly aim off the vitals, but I tend to aim at the very bottom of the vitals so that if they don't jump, I'm still going to kill them. Yeah, that's a good um, philosophy for sure. The bottom one third of the vitals on a whitetail. And, and I'll do the same thing on a mule deer if it's within 40 yards. But once you, you, know, you get out to 60 yards, you know, you can't, especially if you got a little buck fever, it's hard to aim that precisely. So with mule deer, I tried, I, I, what I do do is if it's possible, if it's possible, if I'm standing, in cover and I can draw and if I can just like you say shoot when their head is up so much better if they will if they'll get their head up and turned away from you oh that is oh perfect. yeah for sure because there is definitely more likelihood of jumping the string severely if their head's down but the thing you can the things that you can do at home are make your bow as quiet as possible <clears throat> bows are getting a lot more quiet but there is a huge difference between different models of bows and how much noise they make. Hoyt's been really, really working on it. And Matthews has been really, really working on it. Mm-hmm. And they've got some extremely quiet bows. But there are other things you can do to the bow. Always take your quiver off. Always take your quiver off if you can, if you have time. I can. I have, a, I have a two-piece. I run a two-piece quiver, and it's bolted on. Yeah, um, see, there's there's so much noise in the quiver no matter what you do. Right. Uh, that's the one thing i found that decreases it. But, you know, you put string silencers on. And obviously, every part of the bow, you know, a stabilizer helps tremendously. And, and the shock absorbers that they have in bows now help a lot. And I put additional shock absorbing devices on the bow to decrease the sound. Well, first of all, let's, let's go to the release. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are releases that are very loud when they're shot. And the way you can determine which is which is just putting it on the string. Don't twang the string when you do it, but just pull on the release and listen to it. A lot of releases are very noisy, and you can actually, a lot of times, uh, decrease that amount of noise uh, by just putting some little rubber stopper on where the uh, actual hook goes back and bangs against the release. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the manufacturers are actually working on that. Like Carter has a whisper release. It's very quiet. 
and I, I'm probably going to use that next year. But then um, the arrow, you use very low profile fletching, mm-hmm. very small diameter arrow, uh, preferably a heavy arrow, and then uh, preferably, if you can stand it, uh, a, an expendable broadhead that doesn't have much surface area because they just tend to be a lot quieter. Now, expandables with a whole lot of, oh, I'll call it uh, a whole lot of likelihood, and you could tell just by looking at them to create turbulence, those are going to be noisy. Oh, yeah. So those are just a, just a quick rundown of things you can do. And then the other things that you've talked about is, is shot selection, obviously. You know, an alert deer versus a, a not-so-alert deer. Mm-hmm. A very alert deer is probably more likely to jump the string than what isn't alert. Yeah. When I uh, I did broadhead test last year, uh, we did some vein testing and broadhead testing. It was really easy to find out which broadheads were louder than others. Um, I used a lab radar, and uh-huh. those arrows shooting the exact same arrow out of a hooter shooter. Everything you know, apples to apples, except for the broadhead. The ones that were louder, consequently and this makes sense because more drag, right, were their terminal velocity or the, the, the last velocity. So I did from 20 yards to 80 yards measured, okay? Um, this is going to be an arbitrary number for you, but one that was quieter left my bow at 280 and got to 80 yards at uh, 260 feet per second. Okay. Actually, it was yeah, 257. Actually, I remember very well. Uh, 257. Those, that's a, a linear equation. The more turbulence abroad it has, the faster it's going to slow down because, and the more turbulence it has, the louder it's going to be. That's just right. so, so that's a, actually a very good I never even thought about doing that. That's a great idea. And you can actually do that without any fancy equipment. You just uh, take your broadhead of the same weight. Mm-hmm. You know, side them in for 20 yards. And theoretically, at 20 yards, they should all be about the same if they're the same weight. And then shoot them downrange. And, and the ones that shoot the lowest mm-hmm. at, say, 100 yards are going to be the ones that are going to be the loudest. But anyway, yeah, oh, that's a great idea. You know, I had never considered that. But I can look at a broadhead because we did the same thing, but we did it in a much less scientific way 20 to 30 years ago. We would, you know, sit behind a one bale and let it fly over. Oh, yeah, I did, we did that too. And so you didn't know which one it was. So the guy shooting would change him up, and the guy down there would just have arrow one, two, three, and four. And he would say, okay, and arrow one was definitely louder. Shoot him again. Yeah, it was definitely louder. And uh, same thing, but but you could tell. I mean, now I can just look at a broadhead. Yeah. And uh, I go, oh, boy, that's going to be loud. And it's also going to be – and, you know, talking about linear equivalencies – you'll find that turbulence is linear to accuracy as well. The Uh less turbulence a broadhead creates, the more accurate it's going to be, and the less fletching it requires. So you're looking for a broadhead that looks as much like a field point as possible, as long as obviously, you know, it has to be functional. Yeah, yeah, of course. I've actually found uh, quite a few of the fixed blade broadheads, given the way that I tune my bow now, um, don't have, I mean, obviously there is always going to be a little deviation no matter what from a field point. Cause it's not a field point, but you, I could tell, and, and like you said, you could look at a broadhead when it's grossly, 
one, if it's grossly inaccurate, doesn't spin right and all that stuff, of course. But if it has a lot of surface area or venting or a lot of things to catch drag, you you knew that when you shot, it was going to hit slightly below or a lot below your field point. You know, we went through all that. I did that same, in a, you know, that same unscientific test that you did. Um, I also did it with sound meters. The sound meters, we were getting inconsistent because for some reason we couldn't control the environment enough to, you know, get rid of some of the outer sounds. And even when we were shooting indoors, it was kind of a pain in the neck. But, um, yeah, man, I did, we did everything out to 75 yards indoors with a hooter shooter. I did like four months of testing last year on broadheads, uh, veins, all that. Oh, that's interesting. And do you mind sharing a little bit of that with me? What, uh, what did you find on the broadheads? What broadheads did you find to be the quietest and what bands and what? Um, I'll have to go back here and look and see what was the quietest, but hold on, let me pull up that. I did test the sever by the way. And it, it was a very, it was a very good performing broadhead and I, I liked it. Um, Let's see here. I'm looking at the drag test right now, which is the turbulence test. And this was percentage of drag over the field point. The loudest was a Ramcat hybrid, and that's actually a mechanical. It was had 7.607% drag over the field point. So okay. it left the bow at 298 and it got there at 247 at 80 wow. yards, where the field point left at 298 and got there at 257. Okay. So, some of the best performing broadheads. The best performing broadheads were a broadhead that I would, as far as this is concerned, is a broadhead that I would never shoot because it's dull and it doesn't really, it's called extract. It's something out of, out of um, Australia. And it was, just under 1%. And I shot these all 10 times, by the way, just so you know, and averaged out. The really good good one, so Sever was 2.3%, just so you know. Schwacker was 1.8%. How did the rage do? I didn't do rage because I don't. I wouldn't tell anybody to shoot a rage. <laughs> well, no, I know, but I was just I didn't. No, I, I've no, tested them. sell it as a very, um, very, very accurate broadhead. And, and it, you know what it is. I've, I've, I mean, I've tested it in years. To a, just to a lot of them, it is, but it's, it has a lot of turbulence creating right. uh, structure. So I was interested, but you didn't shoot those. No, I didn't. I didn't do a whole lot of, um, okay. of, of the, um, I did 40 broadheads, but I didn't do a whole lot of the, uh, mechanicals, just the ones that I have, I had that I like, um, okay. but, Best overall performer, believe it or not, was a like best of both worlds anyway, that it was a good broadhead and still the kudu point was good. I don't know if that was the best thing. I'm not sure what that is. is it's that a, a it's a two, two blade, blade two blade single bevel, yeah. Um yeah, that was uh <laughs> yeah. Um, that would be an exception on the linear relationship between in my opinion right i i, I thought so too between I thought accuracy so. and mm -hmm. accuracy and stealth <laughs> yep because only because the two blade head tends to for lack of a better term, term plane it tends to plane see i i didn't have any of that 
and I found, uh, and it's, it, it came down to tuning the bow. I've, I, right now, I could screw all 40 of these. I could screw all 40 of these on, shoot them at, on the same arrow, shoot them out of the hooter shooter. And every, I was splitting knocks at 70 yards. I got pictures of me splitting the knock with three or four different heads. And it's, it really just comes down to how you tune the bow. I've, uh, I'm a firm believer. I used to be that guy. Well, well, this head don't fly or this head don't fly. This head don't fly. Now that's left to right up and down. It came down to the, you know, there's a drag thing. You can't tune a bow for drag. So some of them would hit lower and let me, let me get, let me find that. Well, I, uh, I uh, respectfully disagree. <laughs> I, I, that's why. I, I, I mean, I, I just, that's what, just what, what I found that I, I, I was I started that hundred yard broadhead contest just to do this. And mm-hmm. of course I have a hooter shooter and all that, but you know, and through the years, everyone always says, oh, you know, this flies, this head flies just as good as a field point. Well, yeah. I'm calling BS on all that um, because nothing flies as good as a field point. And, and the, all broadheads are not created equal. However, however you tune your bow, it's just not, it just not the way it is, but, uh, you may be a super tuner. No, uh, I'm, I'm I, not, I'm I not a super tuner, but we, we found out some things and we did some things like I not only tuned the bow, I tuned the arrows, you know, I had every arrow was first bend indexed, you know, Everything like right. we had everything dialed in. Every every arrow that we shot was le- was within one grain of each other. You know, of course, when I put the broadheads on, some of these broadheads were not. But you can tell. So, like for instance, the G te- uh, G five Montec had a five point at uh, seventy yards. It had a five point two eight seven inch group. Okay, versus the field point, which was point seven. So not even an inch, less than an inch on the field point, right? But I had some of these broadheads at sub sub inch and a half groups, uh, like the Van Diemen, Tooth of the Arrow, uh, Alien, VPA. Let's see, Sever was 2.1, a 2.1 inch group at 70 yards. Right. And, and that's out of a hooter shooter. Right. That's out of a hooter shooter. And I also did it with me shooting. I did, I went back and did it with me shooting. And the number, I mean, the numbers were different, obviously, because I'm not as consistent as a hooter shooter, but the numbers crossed over really well. So, but anyway. Well, I need to see that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to show it to you. I mean, I, you can, I'll send it, I'll send you a, a link to the, uh, to it all. You can yeah. look at it. Um, yeah, you know, we've, we've, uh, I've uh, I've just studied it and studied it and studied it and shot and shot and shot, worn my hooter shooter out, and I've always gotten pretty much the same results. Um, that no matter how well you tune your bow, no matter how good a shot you are, mm-hmm. it it uh, in my experience, in my hands, um, nothing will shoot as good as field points. And oh no, they won't shoot as never shoot as good. Between there's vast difference between different broadheads no matter how well you tune them and you know maybe i'm lacking in some part of my science but i just have not experienced that well i so per per our test the the largest group was 5.6 inches 
Uh-huh. And the smallest group of a broadhead was 0.996. Okay. And the field point was 0.7, even. Okay. All right. Oh, now, you were doing that indoors? Were you doing it? Indoors. Uh, yep, 75 yards or 70 yards indoors with the hooter shooter. Where were you doing it? AE? Where were you doing it indoors? Uh, I have a buddy of mine at a big warehouse. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. I wish I could have seen that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do another one eventually here, and maybe I'll I'll get you in on it. Because, I, I mean, well, it opened up my one, eyes to a bunch one, of the stuff. The one variable that I have is I didn't do it indoors. Yeah. And that's – and although – And that's huge. I, I always did it. Yeah. I always do it at first light. It's at my house. My 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 hooter shooter is indoors, and mm-hmm. it's basically the arrow travels 20 yards without any wind. But And I only did it when, you know, I have uh, – flagging tape up at 20, 40, 60, 80, and I did it at 100 yards, but I did it only on the flagging tape. I always did it at, at uh, right as the sun was coming up in the morning and it's when there's no wind here. Yeah. So well, minimal. And you know, perhaps, uh, you know, and my hooter is probably 15 years old, so perhaps they've improved the hooter shooter, but I always got better. See, and you using a laser to sight the hooter? No, but but the thing okay, is Okay, so is, that's the other thing too. I noticed when we were doing it visual sight wise, like actually using the pins and whatever. Well no, you never Or yeah, the or the sight or whatever thing is. Uh yeah, right. it's not. We actually would put a little white dot the exact same size as the what the laser would show up on the on the target and put it exactly I mean it, every shot we took took so long to set up every shot to make sure it was a hundred percent. And but the, the thing is is I but the the, the Consistency in no, I did not do that. But the consistency that I had was uh, that I would shoot uh, field points and broadheads together, meaning I would load a field point, then a broadhead, then a field point, then a broadhead, then a field point, then a mm-hmm. broadhead, and go down and measure the groups. So, you know, I, I, I could definitely improve my technique. I'm gonna have to build a 70 yard long building, <laughs> <laughs> or just believe you, one or the other. Uh, don't don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. But the thing is, is the field points always. Uh, and the other thing I found is is uh, is there's there's a thing that shooting um, with a hooter shooter is is obviously very consistent, much more consistent than we can be uh, shooting by hand. But there's a difference between accuracy and forgiveness. And what I've noticed is you can make certain things very accurate shooting through the hooter shooter, uh, like broadheads, because if a broadhead gets started any different way, mm-hmm. then it's much more likely uh, to, exactly. yep. to kind of get squirrely and fly off on some, get a mind of its own, so to speak, mm-hmm. and do something squirrely. So, yeah, I don't know. And it's very interesting. But I think in my hands, and if you look at, you know, at our broadhead contest, which, you know, we had for whatever, 15 years or so. Right. You'd look at the broadheads that were winning the thing and uh, fixed play broadheads. I don't even everything came within the top 10. And, but uh, I'm a devil's advocate in that. Were, are those guys, were those guys tuning to a, a certain extent that the fixed blade is going to fly. Oh, I'm, not, guys, I'm not a fixed blade guy. These guys are almost all um, semi-elite target archers that okay. were this thing. So they know what they're doing. You know, the plug-and-play broadhead is going to fly better on a 
on an untuned bow than than a uh, you know than a yeah but, but that, that's a whole and so if, if so if it's really tuned well for, my whole reason for starting this thing is you know i started it when i decided to to uh, quit shooting competitively mm-hmm. because i wanted to take my competition i hate to use the word skills but my competition abilities whatever right and put them into uh, uh hunting setups right so yeah it was yeah it's a lot of work a lot of work into into figuring out what was the most accurate thing out there yeah. so but again not I, completely scientific i never did it because you guys always had it right when i would go to hunt blacktail and in, in uh in California in July. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to go do that. And then uh, I got to go to California. So, Well, I'm glad you didn't show up. You would have dominated. No, right? not then. I wouldn't have. <laughs> Maybe now. I don't know. Honestly, I, I think I was a better shooter when I didn't know what the shit I was doing um, than I do now. Now I'm too much in my own head. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of truth there. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the more rabbit holes you go down, the the more doubt it creates in your, you know, in your system, and the more doubt, you know, translates to to poor performance. In my opinion, I feel like confidence is your number one tool. <laughs> so, but yep. Well, Randy, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, spitballing with me. I don't know if we we probably just created a lot more. Uh, questions than answers but uh, well i don't think there is a, a specific answer for this it's uh kind of we're all trying to search, search for the solution mm-hmm. and i don't think there is a there are things you can do to help but i don't think it's a problem we're going to eliminate yeah yeah for sure well uh it was good talking with you and uh next time i'm uh, getting ready to do one of these tests i'll uh i'll let you know about okay, the, about that input. It, all right well thanks for having me all right thank you All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this episode. But before I let you go, I have one more thing to ask of you. I want you to take a serious look at your relationship with hunting and the outdoors and what it really means to you. Now I want you to picture if all that goes away. Not a great picture, right? It's important for us hunters to stick together and have one unified voice. We need to stand for each other and not just when it affects us or what we do not when it's just convenient, but really stand up with each other, lock arms, and anytime someone comes to challenge our heritage, we make one unified voice. We are stronger together. Remember that. I promise you that if you stand up with your fellow hunters, even if it's something you don't do, I know we I brought up this in my podcast several times about deer hunters not caring about lion hunters and not caring about, you know, bear hunters and so on and so forth. It doesn't matter if it's something that you do. If you're not a turkey hunter, you're not a, a bear hunter, you're not a lion hunter, it doesn't matter. You're a hunter, you're a sportsman, you need to stick together. I promise you, if you do that, we are strong and our voice is loud and they will not come for what you love. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one.